The following show is for entertainment purposes only. It references research about psychological issues in general, but it is not to be taken as professional opinion or diagnosis about the individuals in each case. Neither of the hosts has an established professional relationship with the individuals discussed in these stories, and everything discussed is based on their general professional knowledge, training, and experience. Welcome to the Guilty Podcast, where we find the why behind the who, what, when, and where. My name is Colin, and in this episode, I'm going to be joined by David, our licensed professional counselor, to discuss sagawa, cannibalism, and paraphilia. Before we get David on, let's go ahead and take care of a little housekeeping. First, if you want to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Guilty underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Guilty Podcast. Or you can contact us via email at guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. I also want to take a few minutes to thank the most recent five-star reviews on iTunes. A big thank you to Joel H., Maggie Mimsey, Funny the Way It Turned Out, Ariel Melton, and Decomposition Brad. Thank you so much for the reviews. We both really appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show, stop by and give us a review as well. If you have some feedback, feel free to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or by email. That's going to wrap up housekeeping. Let's go ahead and get David on to discuss Sagawa, the cannibal that walked free. David, let's start broadly. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about cannibalism? Sure. Yeah, so for you know this particular topic, I think it's good to go back and actually look at the history of Homo sapiens. You know, one of the comments that was made by that psychologist in Japan who said something like, well, you know, we all breastfeed as children. It's really not that strange that somebody might want human food when they're an adult. He was making kind of a, it was stupid. And you pointed that out. He was making a stupid comment that's not research-based, but there is something to be said about the history of human beings and there being a history of cannibalism. So about 2.5 million years ago, animals, much like modern humans, emerged, which I didn't know that. I mean, that's, that's a long time ago, and that there were people very similar to us around that time. I think I usually think of like the traditional Neanderthal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were Neanderthals, and these, uh, you know, were less sophisticated humans, but they were humans nonetheless. And I thought this was interesting, too you know, from about 2 million years ago to about 10,000 10, years ago, the world was home to several human species. Oh, really? I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, so if you think of like, there's different dogs, like you have border collies and you have Rottweilers. The same was true of people. Hmm. And so, you know, Homo sapiens, you know, Homo means man, sapiens means wise. We emerged from an earth that had many different human species. And now we're the only ones that are alive 
So it feels like it's always been this way. Yeah. But so there, there was cannibalism. There's, you know, uh, we found defleshed bones that were 800,000 years uh, old. And when I say defleshed, I mean, it's evidence that humans had done it. So how, how do they, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I, have, I don't know anything about this, but they, they can determine that it wasn't an animal, that it was actually people. I'm guessing maybe they saw like some kind of use of tools or something, maybe? Well, I read there's tooth marks on bones that will indicate that they came from. Jesus. So they were gnawing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wasn't just... And then also there's fossilized excrement. Okay. Uh, human excrement that has human DNA in it. Okay. Well, that, oh, well that's... Oh. That's your smoking gun there. There you go. That's it. Okay. So there's like different theories as to why they think people did this. Some people think it, it was primarily done for predator control. So... You know, you have people that die in the village and you don't want them just lying around because that brings in animals. So if you eat people yourself, then, you know, fewer predators will come around. So, I mean, you know, there's speculation as to why more recent cannibalism, I think, probably gives us a pretty good idea as to what's going on there. So I, I thought this was kind of crazy, too, that there's increasingly uh, there's increased confidence in this sort of cannibalist scholarship to demonstrate that there was cannibalism at Jamestown. Um, so one of the first, you know, American colonies and, but this sort of thing happened when people got really hungry. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be somewhat like Donner's past, right? I mean, these are, or like the, the, uh, soccer team that got in the plane wreck. I mean, these are extreme circumstances where they really have no other option. Yeah. The Donner party, otherwise known as the worst party ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, not for some people. <laughs> yeah. Worse for, for some than for others. And you find like there's different cultures that would call human uh, human meat long pork, which is just disgusting. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's so long pork. And then you have people describe it as it, the tasting like veal. So, you know, you have instances where people kill and eat other humans because they're starving. But then you also have some uh, instances in which people kill and eat for warfare purposes. There's this tribal chief in Fiji who recorded eating 872 people. What? Yeah. Well, I guess he's got the record. It couldn't have tasted that bad. No, I guess it wouldn't. Yeah. So there's endocannibalism. You know, that's like when you're, you're eating you know, humans to absorb magical qualities or um, you're doing it because you think you're going to embody the wisdom of the person that you were eating. And then there's exocannibalism and that's eating an outsider. So that's often to intimidate or insult an enemy, you know, so, and that's a pretty good deterrent. You know, if you were in an army that was approaching an enemy and it was like, man, if we get captured, they're going to eat us. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I change the way you, you show up to work, you know? Yeah. We're good guys. Uh, you can have whatever it was that you were fighting us over. It's all yours. Exactly. You know, and there's also this tradition in cannibalism, which is a funny phrase, that cannibalism was used as kind of a tool of empire where before invading, you know, one of these remote islands, the empires at the time would say, look, these guys are eating each other. Like we need to go in there and and use their resources. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> We need to go in there and totally take over this. I mean, and I'm not sure that that wouldn't work today. 
I mean, if, 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 you know, the president came on the television and was like, look, we found this island and they are eating each other. <laughs> I think you'd feel some sense of obligation to be like, well, you know, it's like, it's yesterday's, you know, weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, look, we have to go in there. These, these people are, are consuming one another. So there's also this huge, um, tradition of that happening of, empire saying well there's cannibalism going on on this island and and many times there wasn't but that was the justification for going in and taking over somebody's society well that makes sense i mean we use the same argument against native americans you call them savages you say they live like animals and it makes it easier to justify murdering them yeah yeah and i think part of that too is when you elicit disgust in people that's a really good way to distance yourself from them you know so a lot of the propaganda that was around in World War II, and this was, you know, one of the smart things that Hitler did, was he made the Jews disgusting to people. Yeah. So a lot of the pictures that you saw really evoked that emotion. And uh, that emotion has historically been a really good tool to distance people so that you can kill them. So it's a way of dehumanizing. Yeah, exactly. Ironically, this would be something I would imagine a lot of killers do as well, right? I mean, it makes it easier to kill someone if you don't see them as a person who has a family and a life and experiences like you have. Yeah, I think it happens in murder. It also happens in war. You know, when you think about the names that we give to enemies, there's usually racial slurs or, you know, there's we give them some nickname. And, you know, it's a lot easier to pull the trigger when you're looking at what you've identified them as. It's a lot harder to pull the trigger if you're reminding yourself that they're a father or a son or a brother. Yeah. So I think that there's a long history with people that we we kind of have to change the ethical math. We have to convince ourselves that we're dealing with an animal, um, somebody who's not like us, and then it's a little bit easier to, to kill. And so cannibalism and you know accusing the enemy of cannibalism has, been, has served that purpose for you know a really long time. Interesting. So there's endocannibalism, so that's eating within the group. Exocannibalism, that's eating people outside the group. And there's like medicinal cannibalism. So for a while, doctors thought that for epilepsy, the best treatment was drinking human blood. When was this? Uh, I don't have that off the top of my head, but I think it was in the last like 300 years or something. Wow. You don't have to go very far back to look at some of the previous medical practices to, to be appalled. Even... um so there was this doctor, I think his first name was John, Dr. John Kellogg, I think is right. But anyway, he thought that eating really damp, gross, bland food reduced your sex drive. And this was during like the Victorian era where people, you know, weren't supposed to be sexual. And so he developed a cereal and he called it the cornflake. And that's where Kellogg's cornflakes came from. No. Yeah. I'm going to Snopes that. Really? do it that's yeah. ridiculous so you know if you, if you uh, just Kellogg's are, are bland and gross they were engineered to be that way well they only are if you don't eat them fast enough that milk makes them all <laughs> soggy yeah you gotta you gotta distribute your milk perfectly and then balance it out and then eat it quick enough exactly you know it's funny just yeah. as a side note I'm such a smug bastard because I sit here and insult these people for their beliefs not really taking into account all the schooling that I've been lucky enough to have in the age I was lucky enough to be born in and I have the internet and all these books 
that these guys didn't have. So it's so easy for me to point at him and go, God, you're dumb. But, you know, had I lived back then, I don't know that I would have been any different. I probably would have been more dumb. I mean, this guy was a doctor. I'm not a doctor. So Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to think that the people previous to us were idiots. And it's fair to say that people in 100 years, 200 years from now will be talking that way about us. Well, not me, but some <laughs> of us. Yeah. How, how could they? Yeah. So that's there's that medicinal cannibalism. There's also auto cannibalism. So that's eating yourself. Um, everybody does this. It's like oh. biting, biting your nails. Oh, I do that. Okay. Yeah, all right. So I'm a cannibal. All, yeah. There's a little cannibal in all of us. You just find a way to just put me with these killers every episode. You realize that you just you have to you have to pen something on me. <laughs> so now I'm like, man, every time now I'm a cannibal. All right. Yeah. Auto cannibal. That's really- that's my goal here. Yeah, I guess so. You're doing a good job. Yeah. Thanks. So far, I need a like I need like a team. Do they have do they have like psychiatrists in teams, you know, um, where I could have like a panel, like a panel of 3 <laughs> or 4 that all observe me, you yeah, know, and have me do different things. Kind of like when they put the monkey in space, like there's a whole bunch of them watching and checking things. I need like that. Yeah. I think you'd have to go inpatient for that. Yeah. <sighs> That's expensive, hospital. man. I don't got. I don't, I don't think my insurance covers teams of doctors. <laughs> Be lucky to get one. All right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so auto cannibalism. Yep. And then, um, then there is this sort of Hannibal Lecter style cannibalism. So, you know, and a lot of that's drawn up by the media, and and I think a lot of these somewhat marginalized fringe weirdos, their ideas of cannibalism become that much more romanticized because they see this sort of media, but, you know, so that's the kind of cannibal who, you know, as he's preparing the food, there's adrenaline associated with it. Uh, there's pride associated with being a cannibal. And, you know, he's, I read, you know, one author said, you know, the cannibal is in a league of his own and he knows it. And so there's this sort of pride in being that cannibal. And so that's the other kind. Um, but then there's, you know, we can kind of bring this zone in on the most recent podcast that you did. Then there's this case that we're looking at where it seems like sex is as much a part of his cannibalistic behavior as anything else. So this would be a type of fetish. The research on this, there's a a category in the DSM called paraphilia. Paraphilia, what it is, is uh, it's the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors. So you have people that are really attracted to like tailpipes or really attracted to cars or really. That's a real thing. Yeah. Oh, I've seen this on Reddit. I know this exists. (laughs) I have seen some neck beards. (laughs) I have absolutely seen. I thought it was a joke. No, this is real. This is real. Okay. So, you know, when you're listening to this guy talk, what's his last name? Sagawa. What's his name? Yeah. You know, he is basically saying, you know, that his cannibalistic tendencies are tied to his sex drive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question might be, well, how does this sort of thing happen? And, you know, with somebody like this, there's not a sample size big enough to research this. So you just kind of have to speculate with the information that you have. And one of the things we know about sexual fetishes, there's a couple of different theories as to how they develop. One is we know there's some degree of uh, something happening biologically. So in 2008, there was a study with 200 men 
and uh, that had fetishes and they wanted to figure out what the biological similarities were. And there's this thing called digit ratio. Have you ever heard of this before? No. Digit ratio basically studies, this is going to sound like pseudoscience, but this is crazy. So it basically studies the length of your fingers and it gives you a crude means to determine how much testosterone somebody was exposed to in utero and how much estrogen they were exposed to. Really? So, yeah, it's weird. So what they found is that there is the ratio of the pointer finger to the ring finger in people with, with people that have fetishes, um, that the ratio indicates that there is excessive prenatal estrogen exposure. Wait, wait, so, wait. Say that again. I'm looking at my hand. Yeah. So, so the ratio of the pointer finger to the ring finger uh-huh. with these 200 men with fetishes indicated that there was an excessive prenatal estrogen exposure. So here's how you determine that. So on the hand with the pointer finger being shorter than the ring finger, that indicates high exposure to testosterone in the uterus. Okay. And the hand with the pointer finger being longer than the ring finger, that indicates high exposure to estrogen. Uh, well, which one's the bad one? Which one do I not want? Because <laughs> I can shift my hand ever so slightly <laughs> yeah. to kind of well, make one longer than the other. Well, in this case, let me ask you this. Like, which is longer? Your pointer finger, like when you look at your right hand, say, yeah. which is longer, your pointer finger or your ring finger? It looks like my ring finger. Your ring finger is longer? Yeah. Then you love anime. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, it's spot on then. These docs are right. <laughs> That's a that, case closed. Let's head out. Yeah. So the hand with the pointer finger uh, being shorter than the ring finger, which we both, that actually indicates high exposure to testosterone in the uterus. So you're not you're not in the in the group of people that have fetishes. Well, that explains the balding and the uh, the hair. Yeah. Right? So I mean, it's not uh, it's not necessarily that. And I'm going to get so sick of saying this um, sort of caveat, but this is not to say that if you have that digit ratio, then you definitely have a fetish. It's just yeah. to say that there's an elevated uh, correlation of those things in people who have fetishes. Okay. So that's that's kind of the first. There's and that sort of thing gives you a biological. Uh, window like there's something biological happening here if you can identify that sort of thing the other thing is classical conditioning so with those of you who are familiar with pavlov and the experiment with the dog and the dog salivating so what happened was pavlov brought food to a dog and the dog salivated and then he brought the food to the dog and he rang a bell and the dog salivated and then he rang the bell without bringing the food and the dog salivated without the food so in other words, there can be this learning through association that happens, and it's this sort of really crude, uh, imprecise learning. And so it can be possible that you're exposed to something when you're young, you think about that thing while you masturbate, and then that develops an appetite for that thing. So with people who have fetishes about leather or cars or things like that, you can often find stories in their past where they would masturbate in their parents' car. And then as they got older, they had this attraction that, you know, it's fair to say, or at least fair to hypothesize that it came from, you know, the, the car and the sexual activity happening together. And then afterwards, the car becomes an object of fantasy, just as the bell with Pavlov triggered the involuntary response of the salivation in the dog. So that's interesting because that means that 
it's not necessarily what you would choose to masturbate to. It could be something that's just around you or has an indirect influence on your time masturbating. Does that make sense? Totally. I think that's right. And I also think that it can be direct. I mean, there's also some research and all this research is really, er you know, it's very early. So you, you want to be hesitant, but there is some early research that suggests that people, whatever you look at, if you look at pornography, that people develop an appetite to engage in those particular behaviors. And that's why you'll have issues in marriages where people look at a lot of pornography, then they bring that conditioned desire into the sex life of their marriage. And then the other partner might not want to engage in that. And it becomes even harder for the person who's been looking at the pornography to become sexually aroused by other more, you know, other things that they've been doing in the past. So in other words, you know, this sort of classical conditioning, this type of learning, you can develop an appetite that creates problems. Um, and so, yeah, it can be with something, and I imagine this is for a certain percentage of people, a very low percentage of people, that it can be just something incidental that's in the environment, or it can be something in the environment that's very direct. You know, it can be the pornography that you're looking at. Wow. Well, so I would imagine, and I, I mean, we're kind of getting off topic, but I would imagine then that the easier access to the large amount of pornography online might actually change a lot of human sexual behavior, at least in countries that have access to it in the future. This, it's certainly possible. I mean, we'll see what happens. So let's talk a little bit about when he was a kid. Now, he's always been short, small, somewhat frail, not necessarily unhealthy, but he seems to, or at least his fetish started with larger women, Western women who were taller, bigger, stronger than even he was. And part of him claimed that that's what attracted him to them is that he was this small, ugly thing and they were these big, beautiful women. And he said, again, it's one of those things, I'm not sure if he's just saying it or if he means it, but he said that he thinks what, attra what was initially attractive was that they possessed the qualities that he didn't have. And he thought, you know, if I could just consume that, then maybe I could be that. And this would go back to your form of, I don't, I don't guess it wouldn't necessarily be endo, right? But trying to bring in the qualities of someone else. Yeah, it does have that feeling. But I would also say, here's the problem with that sort of thing. When somebody says, well, I thought that if I could eat them, I would, I would embody their qualities. Okay, are you saying that you explicitly believed that? Like if I asked you that at the age, you would have said, yeah, no, that's what I believe. I'm going to consume this person and then I'm going to grow a foot and then, you know, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to feel strong and powerful yeah. and liked by other people. That seems unlikely, right? It seems unlikely that somebody would explicitly believe that. Yeah, I mean, so, it doesn't make any sense. No, and so maybe what he's saying is, well, no, unconsciously I believed that. Okay. And you have to be very careful about that because it's like, well, you unconsciously believe that. Well, how did you discover what you unconsciously believed? Yeah. And I think that that's also a very, it's very Freudian. You have to be very careful with that sort of stuff. And I think it sounds like it's for entertainment. You know, when anybody starts to say, well, I think unconsciously, it's like, well, you mean like outside of your awareness, but you knew it was there. Like you had some sense that something was true, 
but you didn't focus on it? Or are you saying that you had a motivation that was totally hidden from you and that's what motivated your behavior? And I think that when somebody says, I had this unconscious, completely hidden motive, even from myself, and now I'm reporting out on that motive, uh, I get, I, I, there's generally a simpler, more likely explanation. Yeah. So for somebody like this, as far as cannibalism goes, I think we can go ahead and we can pretty much throw away the early human part and those desires and the different reasons that they might have eaten people, right? So we can kind of say his tends to lean more towards some strange fetish or the Hannibal Lecter type cannibalism. The problem with the paraphilia uh, category in the DSM is it really doesn't talk about cannibalism at all. So it's obvious. I don't think cannibalism is something, you know, this type of cannibalism hasn't happened enough that you can set up enough research and collect enough data to actually have it permitted into the DSM. But the category in general talks about these sort of weird sexual attractions, inappropriate sexual attractions. I mean, one of the things that the DSM lists too is, um, although I, I think off the top of my head, I could be wrong. I think they're, they're saying these things still need more research, but the list, even things like coprophilia, which is an abnormal interest, um, and sexual attraction to human feces. So there's things that people are sexually aroused by that are either neutral or disgusting. And there's something, there's some phenomena there. And so in his case, there's something that he is reporting he's sexually attracted to, and there's some phenomena there. So like you said, we're kind of bound to his report. It might be that he's not actually sexually aroused by this, although it certainly, I mean, the details of the case certainly seem to lean that way. So there's something here. There's some fetish that is taking place and either it could be due to genetic factors, or at least that's not due to, but, you know, includes genetic factors or perhaps includes some classical conditioning. Okay. So let's, uh, we're not ever going to figure out what spawned that cannibalistic desire and that fetish, but we can, we can safely say that it's most likely going to be some type of bizarre fetish could have something to do with his childhood could have something to do with either the game or him being somewhat small and frail and desiring something. But I think we can rule that one out too. That one seems like kind of a stretch. And I think you made a good point about you were, you know, it was in your subconscious, but your conscious of it doesn't quite fit unless you came to the realization later, I suppose. But well, even Freud, the way that you became aware of your unconscious material was through psychoanalysis. It was through techniques like free association, where you would just say what comes to mind. It was through slips. You know, you've heard of like Freudian slips. So mm -hmm. something that you didn't mean to say, but that you actually meant comes out of your mouth. You know, so it was through techniques that Freud would use to get people to understand their unconscious. And so I don't know that he had any of that treatment, but I would also say the research for that treatment is pretty dismal. It's not, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis is not evidence-based. So we know that there's unconscious processes in our brain. There's things that are going on all the time that there's no amount of introspection that are going to allow us to know what those things are. You know, you can't go, well, I'm really going to look into my motivation and then understand the, the biological mechanisms that 
gave to that motivation, if that makes sense. You're not going to be able to, to pull back the curtain so far that you understand what's happening at a mechanical level in your brain. But we know those, the mechanics of the brain are in place and that's all stuff that's outside of our awareness. It's outside of our unconscious or it's outside of our consciousness, but that's not what Freud meant when he, when he said unconscious, when Freud was talking about something that was unconscious, he was talking about, you can think about like this box in your brain where your motives reside, where your drives reside. And you you don't know what those are. There's this hidden material inside of you and that's, what's motivating you. Yeah. And you have to bring that forward somehow so that you can be a better adjusted person. And so what I would say is that even if he underwent some sort of Freudian analysis to understand what was in his unconscious, that pursuit in and of itself is not evidence-based by today's standards. So I'm skeptical of that. Okay. So something else I wanna talk about is gonna be insanity. Uh, I don't wanna get into the legal aspects as far as how the U.S. handles it with the McNaughton rule. But I do think we can look at and talk about when a country rules somebody insane and unfit to stand trial. So just as a broad overview, um, in America, to be deemed insane, at the time you committed the crime, did you know what you were doing was wrong? I don't know what the French rule is, but it's clearly not that. Because he knew immediately, and at every point during this situation, he knew what he was doing was wrong. Do you want to talk a little bit about how someone could be considered quote-unquote sick? And how, I don't even know how to question it. I think I know what you mean. Okay. So, it can be really confusing because in the DSM, you know, that's the, the large book of diagnoses that my field uses. There is antisocial personality disorder, which we've talked about. And that's, you know, if you, if you talk about that in a really casual way, people will call it psychopathy, right? So that's not quite right, but you get the general idea of what people are talking about. So is a psychopath or somebody who enjoys violating the basic rights of other people, is that person sick? Well, you could say on one hand, that person is obviously sick, right? Mm -hmm. Who does that? Who's built that way? You know, that's not normal. It's not normal to enjoy hurting other people. So in, in some sense, that's sick. But in another sense, aren't we kind of moralizing uh, or aren't we talking about behavior that should belong to a moral category instead of a illness category? So if you hit your wife, do you get to say, I'm sick, I have antisocial personality disorder? And so I, I think that that's where that things become tricky. So should we be, how should we talk about something like antisocial personality disorder? How should we talk about somebody who eats other people? Um, because on the one hand, they do seem sick. They're, they're doing something that is very abnormal. And on the other hand, is it just immoral or is it a part of an illness? And, you know, as much as I trash Freudian psychology. Here's what I'll say is that Freud gets the criticism that he deserves, but he doesn't often get the credit that he deserves. Here's a really good way, helpful way of thinking about this from the psychoanalytic tradition, which is Freud's tradition. So you can, for the most part, split up mental health issues into two different categories. 
they can either be egosyntonic or egodystonic. So egosyntonic, that basically means in alignment with the will or with the, with the ego, with the self. So you can have mental health issues that are in alignment with what the person wants. So something like narcissism, right? Those symptoms are in alignment with what the person wants. That person enjoys their narcissism generally. They're unconflicted. Yeah. You can think about antisocial personality disorder, same thing. They're unconflicted. Then you think about ego dystonic. So ego dystonic is not in alignment with the self. In other words, the self experiences pain and suffering as a result of these symptoms. And so you can put like having an anxiety disorder, having obsessive compulsive disorder, having depression. These are symptoms that people are experiencing that they do not want to experience. So I think this is almost a better way to make a distinction between are we dealing with somebody who is mentally ill or are we dealing with something that belongs to a moral category? So if you have a mental health issue that is egosyntonic in accordance with the will, somebody who kills and enjoys it, that's still very different than the kind of illness of somebody who is suffering as a result of their symptoms. And I think that the court should handle these people differently. And I think they do based on whether the symptoms are in alignment with the will or against the desire of the will. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So then with the people that are enjoying their mental illness or it's not causing them any issues, would that make them, I mean, I guess in and of themselves, they're there's almost like a sub level of illness because they actually feel that way. Does that make sense? Like the very fact that they do enjoy those things makes them almost more sick. Does, does yeah, that, no, I, am I, am I, I, I feel like I'm like, I'm messing up what I'm trying to explain. I think it's just what you do with the definitions of sick, right? So I think in one sense, you're totally right. So somebody who has an anxiety disorder is not as sick as somebody who kills for fun. Yeah. But in another sense, if you want to say that sickness is really a category that we should define by ego dystonic symptoms, then you would say, you know, anxiety is something that should be empathized with. Yeah. But the desire to hurt somebody else as sick as it is shouldn't be. Yeah. So it changes how you relate to the person depending on what symptoms they have. So you think of like a school shooter. So a school shooter is inflicting a lot of pain on other people. You can have somebody say, well, they're sick. Obviously, who does that? Who wants to hurt other people? Well, that's very different than the kind of sickness that you're talking about when somebody has depression. So I think it really has to do with are the symptoms in alignment with the self or not? And if they're in alignment with the self, we should treat them very differently. And I think that, yes, I understand, I take your point that if their illness is so soaked in that they're enjoying it, in one sense, you could say they're the most sick of all. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's the, well, yeah, that's much better way of saying what I said, like I was uh, trying to talk to a seven year old. That's a, that's a much better way of putting it, but yeah, it Why makes them get almost... your head out of that anime and put it in a real book. Yeah, well, they ha- it has words, <laughs> little captions and stuff. 
and it was originally in Japanese. So there's Did subtitles. Did I also see that you like created some? You made some suggestion that I should go to a Juggalo rally. What's wrong with you? Oh well, as you can see, it wasn't really uh, a popular idea. <laughs> I, for one, would love to send you to uh, the ICP gathering and just see how it turns out. I think this is an idea for maybe its own show or at least a documentary. We're going to put you because, you know, you're, you're a straight lace guy, you know, very, very boring. You're a classic white therapist. I mean, come on. We, you yeah. know, we, we send you over there with the people that paint their face and uh, spray soda pop on each other. Soda and, pop? Yeah, Fago. <laughs> and uh, they listen to killer clowns and they have hatchet people tattoos and they dance around and they get loaded and have sex in public. I mean, that's that's got to be a TV show. I'm telling yeah. you, man, I got ideas. I don't, I don't know if it's true, but somebody told me that their gathering or whatever they call it is happening or could be happening in Colorado this year. No, probably because weed is legal. It's a lot easier. Yeah. yeah, that could be it. But I don't know. I mean, I would rather they have it in Detroit or I don't know, somewhere that's been long forgotten. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I guess Detroit is on is on that list. Well, they yeah, ought to put them in an open I'm space. Isolate all everybody that listens to this by the end. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna be like, are you breathing? <laughs> well, you are the worst. Yeah, exactly. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. Well, that's what therapists are good at. They just they're perfect at deflecting, make everybody yeah. else feel like they have the problem. Yeah, totally. Then, Sorry to everybody out there who's listening from Detroit. Yeah, you guys already have it bad enough. Yeah, that's yeah. Come on, you know, you kick a dog when it's down. I mean, well, I guess you shouldn't kick a dog anyway. Yeah, like kick a person. No, you shouldn't kick a person either. I guess just don't hit anybody ever, unless they, you know. Unless they happen to be Sega one, then I'm, I'm going to turn the other way. Yeah, unless they're eating a loved one, then do what you need to. Yeah. All right. Um, so the other thing I thought was interesting about this guy is they find in his apartment, he's got a recording of the murder, a tape recording, and he's taken pictures uh, while he's dismembering the body and performing different acts with it. This, to me, screams what a serial killer does. Uh, they're keeping mementos. They're keeping parts of that crime probably so they can relive it. Is that what he's doing here? Or is it related more to the cannibalism than the actual murder? Can we separate those two things, in this case anyway, as two separate and distinct acts that maybe he didn't actually want to kill her, but had to in order to uh, fulfill his desire to be a cannibal? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it could also be, and I know you'll probably do Jeffrey Dahmer at some point, but wasn't it Jeffrey Dahmer who, after killing people, he would take pictures of their limbs and then masturbate to those pictures? Well, him among others. Yeah. I believe so, Ted Bundy did something similar. I think he would take pictures of the dead bodies and masturbate to them. Yeah. Um, so it could be that it could be that brand of broken um, where, you know, you have him trying to save these things so that he can re-engage them for sexual satisfaction later. Yeah. I'm trying to distinguish. I'm, well, I guess what I'm trying to do is figure out, is this really a one time thing for him or was he going to do this again? I, I have a hard time imagining 
there are certain murders where, you know, it takes place with certain circumstances where you can determine they're probably not going to do it again. Maybe a fight broke out. Maybe their wife or husband cheated on him. They freak out. It's a crime of passion. I can understand something like that. You still murdered somebody, but you didn't do it because you enjoyed it, and you didn't do it... I don't want to say you didn't do it for selfish reasons, but they're not quite as selfish. But well, something... it's, not, it's not an impulsive decision. Yeah, this was... Oh, this was meticulously planned over the course... I mean, the guy just couldn't actually do it for the longest time, but he had absolutely planned it, and he was going to do it at some point. Um, yeah. So... I feel like when people are impulsive... Not to say they wouldn't do something again, because impulsivity basically compromises your will. You know, it kind of overrides your decision making and then pushes you to do something. But premeditation, the amount of planning that goes into something, I think gives you an indicator of the amount of somebody's inner comfort with making that decision, but also just their dedication. So if somebody's really dedicated to it, it's a lot harder to think that after completing the act that they'll be done. Yeah. And yeah, I just so can't I, help but think had he gotten away with this, he would have done it again. Yeah, well, I'm glad he didn't. I mean, this was one of the most disgusting. <laughs> like, I was listening to, you know, the, uh, as you were telling the story, and I was like, oh my, this is really, this is hard to listen to. Like this is this is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it was it was over the top. And you know what's funny? I don't know if it's funny. I found it somewhat humorous, but I have a very dark sense of humor. I could not find a cannibal that I liked. And by that, what I meant was <laughs> I searched through lists of cannibals and I wanted to find there were some that ate their victims out of spite. Um I found some people that um uh, a Native American tribe had killed someone in his family and he went after them and started eating their liver because it was um, insulting to them, which you've discussed earlier in the show. So he would have fallen into one of those categories. Yeah. I found some cannibals that just, um, they weren't even cannibals. They like bit victims. And I was like, that's not quite the same thing. I wanted a can. I wanted someone who ate a person and enjoyed it. Yeah. And that list narrowed really quickly down to this guy and Jeffrey Dahmer, pretty much. And then I was like, well, I want to save Dahmer for when... Dahmer's going to be probably a multi-part episode. I really want to do it well. I want to take a lot of time to do it. So that's a bigger project. So I didn't want to do that yet. And then I got stuck with this weird Japanese guy. And I figured, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting case. It's very... It, it was shocking that this dude just walked away. I mean, we got people in this country that sold weed that spent more time in prison than this guy did, and he murdered and ate somebody. And I guess it's even more shocking that he walked away. Not, It's one thing if he got away with murder. Uh, it's still an awful injustice. But the fact that he not only got away with murder, but one of the most gruesome things, and he cannibalized this woman, he cuts her up and takes her to a park. I mean, like, all of it together, and you're just like, and this guy's just walking around. You know, he's selling books and paintings and hanging out in Japan and he's on TV shows. He did two symposiums. I've never been invited to speak anywhere. (laughs) You know, I mean, like I I actually should have looked up what what he was talking about. I'm actually curious. But, you know, 
that uh, I thought that was just it. That was one of the few interesting cases. But yeah, he certainly is the most disturbing. I think that we've done so far, and he's probably going to hold that spot for at least a good while. I think until we get to to the maybe the major serial killers like BTK mm. or um. I mean, I'm trying to think there are even some serial killers that this guy might not be as gruesome. Some of them that just murdered people and dumped their bodies might be a little more, a little less, I guess, disgusting. But Well, there's something about like the involvement with a corpse afterwards that makes it that much more disgusting. But I think, you know, there's probably one thing when I think about it that could have prevented his behavior. And what's that? Kellogg's. Cornflakes. Well, it's got to start. You got to start your morning off right. Yeah. Well, I mean, dampening the sexual drive. You know, I think Dr. Kellogg was on to something here. You know, yeah. dampen the sexual drive with a cannibal like this. And uh, that's it. You're good to go. You know what they could use this guy for is a Snickers commercial. <laughs> Show him eating a body and just like, hey, you're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> is, Have a Snickers. That is awful and beautiful. Yeah, well, that's that. Well, it makes sense. You eat a soggy bowl of cereal in the morning. Yeah, you're right. Dampen it down, and maybe he doesn't eat anybody. Yeah, but I have well, a feeling you'd have to. Even if you dampen this guy a little, <laughs> it's still gonna. Not, it's not gonna end up well. It's just yeah. not gonna end up with two suitcases in a park. You yeah. know, it's it's gonna be a little different. Well, I also unfortunately the whole Kellogg's thing doesn't work. You know, there's no research to back that it, it actually dampens the sex drive. But you should have seen, um, so Cornflakes invented as an anti-masturbation tool. Um, and you should see some of the equipment that came out of the Victorian era to keep people from masturbating. Why? Is it religious? Um, I think that was a component of it. But they also had some beliefs about it being really unhealthy. Like you were losing fluids that your body needed. So they actually thought it was like a health crisis. So but some some of these... Um, these tools, um, if you look them up, it is, it's like chastity belts for men. And they would like also do things like tie people's wrists to bedposts. I mean, it was, they were really concerned with, with masturbation during the Victorian era. I feel like a lot of times when, when people are obsessed with things like that, they're just bored. There's like nothing else to do. Yeah. I mean, well, it also, I mean, the Victorian era and just how, how, sexually repressed it was does give freud some credibility i mean freud made everything about sex but that's because you weren't allowed to talk about it at all you know like even the legs on the tables had to be covered because people considered them too phallic so so that whole era that whole generation and in many cases man and wife didn't even sleep in the same bed so i mean that whole time period was totally sexually repressed so i mean you know, to give Freud some credit, he was speaking about a time when nobody could talk about it at all. It makes sense that you would overreach and say, actually, everything's about this. I just, I, I don't understand what people's fear and fascination with sex is and why it's such a taboo subject to begin with. Like, what's, what is, what makes it such a bad and dangerous thing to discuss in society openly. Now, I'm not saying you should go to work and you talk about your sex life, but, you know, there's all these pushes to eliminate discussing sex in school. There's a lot of talk about how... uh, There's just... There's a lot of work trying to cover up 
the very act that brought us all here. And it yeah. just seems odd that people can't discuss it. And I'm not even saying like like sexual jokes. I'm just talking about, you know, like sex in schools or just teaching. And I'm not talking about young kids, but I, I think by the time you're in middle school, you probably by just by being around other kids and nature, you're going to have some questions about your body, the opposite sex's body, uh, and how you feel towards people you're attracted to, whether it's the same sex or different. I just don't understand why we can't openly discuss that and and why it's just such a dangerous topic. Yeah. Well, I teach a human sexuality course sometimes at the university, and um, it is funny when I start talking about sex really plainly, people get really uncomfortable for like the first two classes, and then eventually people get over it. You know, but I mean, even just talking about biology, you know, and just, you know, when you have to like break down the different components of genitalia, people get so uncomfortable, you know, and it's, you're, you're just talking about anatomy. Yeah. What, what, but what is that? Like, I guess I just don't understand. Is it, I'm guessing, yeah. So it's society. Yeah. It's just culture. All right. Well, lighten up people. All right. It's okay. (laughs) You can talk about sex. It's, it's fine. Everybody has it. Well, not, not those people on Reddit, the neckbeards that we were talking about. Maybe not them. Yeah. Everyone else probably does. Uh, It's a normal part of life. And uh, dare I say a healthy part of life. If we if we opened up and talked more about sex, you might actually catch some of these people earlier. Yeah. These things might actually come up because maybe they're going to start asking questions about it. Maybe they're going to say, hey, I'm sexually attracted to animals or I'm sexually attracted to these particular objects or things and we could discuss it and find out what's going on. So let's go back real quick and talk about fetishes. Can you can you work to remove a fetish? Can you de-fetish someone? I think my understanding of it is it just becomes about managing it. Okay. So, And it's true with all things like the older that you get, the more entrenched your sexual interests are. Yeah. So, so. so catching him. So discussing sex early could actually help us help control people who have dangerous desires. Yeah. And I also think even if you couldn't change it, wouldn't you want to know? Oh, absolutely. You know, wouldn't you want to know if your kid had a sexual appetite that could possibly lead to him victimizing somebody else or ending up in jail or, you know, I mean, there's no, there's no harm that's going to come from knowing about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's not, you're not going to try to ostracize him or hold him down, but you could at least get into therapy, start talking about it, start exploring it. And if it's early enough, maybe this person can control it. They won't ever act on it. Yeah. And I think yeah. this probably applies to pedophilia as well. You know, if if someone has those desires or urges early, maybe we can try to help them work through it before they turn into that subway guy, you know, before it turns into this porn ring and they're buying and selling pictures and they're trying to, you know, or these people that are kidnapping kids. So we could actually save lives and people if we just openly talked about more intimate issues and that probably isn't just limited to sex it's probably all mental illness should be discussed more openly there shouldn't be this um stigma attached to people that have mental illness right yeah and it's and it's up to the adults to set the tone i think that's the sad thing is that kids don't know they should be ashamed of these things you know they they take cues from their parents 
and you know they read into their parents' hesitation and embarrassment, and then they feel the same way. You know, so it's up to the parents to set the tone in terms of you know we're going to talk about this is normal to talk about. There's nothing to worry about, and so long as you do that, at least when kids are really young, they're not going to feel embarrassed to talk about it. There's obviously some embarrassment that naturally comes from feeling like your privacy has been violated as you become a teenager and you start to become you know sexually active. But especially having these conversations with people when they're kids, our discomfort is our problem, you know, and that's your kids. They don't experience that discomfort when they're little. Yeah. So the main takeaway was Sagawa. I don't know if it's Sagawa or Sagawa. I'm going to go with Sagawa because that's what I've been saying. Main takeaway is he's got an extremely bizarre fetish. He's obviously not remorseful for what he did. And I would base that on the fact that while he's being mentally evaluated, he's writing a book about it. Uh, as soon as he get back, he gets back to Japan, he's writing more books, articles, doing interviews, and he's doing anything he can to make money that way. He claims it's the only way he can make money. I feel like there's probably somebody out there that would have gave you some type of job, um, and you already changed your name. I, I, I mean, I feel like there's probably something else you could have done. So... He's not remorseful. He has no regret for what he did. He still has those urges. He's never tried to suppress him. He's never really seen a doctor consistently. So we can say he's a scumbag. Yeah, fair right. enough. So he's a scumbag, dirtbag, goofball, whatever. All yeah. right, so nothing there. And then uh, we can say, hey, uh, talk to your kids. <laughs> yeah, right? That's the PSA. That's, That's the, the PSA. PSA that came out of the Guilty Podcast this yeah. episode. Yeah, so talk to your kids about everything and anything. So they don't turn up uh, to be like Sagawa. <laughs> That's so heavy. Yeah. Not that they will. Well, we don't know. Probably not. We don't know. He had parents, and <laughs> they are actually decent parents. That's the weird thing about his case. Yeah. The weird thing about his case is he had a decent family. He had a wealthy father, a mother that loved him. His father loved him. They were well-respected. His brother loved him. They got along. He had a, by all accounts that I've read, he had a good, healthy childhood, and he even said it was the best time of his life. I mean, behind closed doors, who knows? But it seems like he had a good childhood, and the dude turns out to be... You can never tell. That's the weirdest thing. Jeffrey Dahmer was the same way. He had a good, healthy childhood. Turns out he's just, you know, out in the woods killing animals, and then pretty soon he's killing guys and eating them. So, Yeah, well, I, the research says that good parenting leads to a variety of outcomes. So it's, it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not if you're a good parent, you get a good kid. You know, so good parenting leads to good outcomes. It leads to average outcomes. It leads to bad outcomes. You know, so if you're the kind of parent who blames yourself for how your kid turned out, you're probably a pretty conscientious, introspective person, and you should give yourself a break because it really had nothing to do with you. If you're the kind of parent who, you know, your kid turned out horrible and you think it has nothing to do with you, well, there might be a, a reason to look into your, you, you know, into how you parented. But the research says that, you know, it's not like parents are responsible for who their kids become, because even if you're a good parent, for the most part, you're going to get a spread. So then uh, it'd be interesting at some point, we, we won't do it today, but at some point it'd be interesting to talk about when the parents are responsible and when they're not. Because I know, you know, we both grew up in Colorado. Columbine happened when we were both, I was in middle school. You might have been a little bit younger, like sixth grade maybe? Yeah, I was in elementary school. Okay. 
I remember how how much it really affected the the entire state, but you know, even and local schools hated their parents after that. Exactly, uh, the I parents mean. took so much heat, and it's just interesting. You know, at, at what point is it the parents' fault, or at least do they take some responsibility? And these are two kids who also grew up. I mean, they grew up in a very nice part of Colorado. They did grow up in a really nice part of Colorado. And it's so weird, you know, whenever there's a tragedy, you start to see this latent tribal psychology emerge. And it's almost like, you know, when you read the Bible and you see these things where like, you know, people's families are held accountable for the sins, you know, so it'll be like, you know, the, the, sons are held accountable for their parents' behavior or the parents are held accountable for their son's behavior, this really tribal style of justice. It's almost like you can see how that form of governance emerges in primitive contexts, you know, where somebody gets, you know, somebody shoots up a school and everybody goes, you know, well, the lineage is responsible. Yeah. Well, and that's one reason you need some rule of law. Because if yep. it were up to that mob, they would have lynched those parents. Yeah. I mean, they would have marched onto their house and grabbed them and just dragged them out in the street. French Revolution style. Yeah. So. so but yeah, we should talk about that. I, I could talk about like the research on uh, human development and, you know, what part is, a, you know, res- what's responsible for genes, shared environment, unshared environment. It's all pretty interesting research. All right. That wraps up this show. I want to thank you for listening and sharing the show with friends, family, and social media. Tune in next time for a new case, which hopefully won't be as gruesome. Please visit us on Twitter or Facebook and leave a review on iTunes. So, this is Colin for David saying, Don't be that brand of broken. <laughs>